Many of you, if you've been reading the newspapers, and especially if you read Reason Magazine's website, which covers these issues very well, have noticed recently that there's a sort of lemonade stand reign of terror uh, raging across the land. Um, local governments, which keep telling us how strapped for funds they are and how they're having to lay off teachers and firemen, nevertheless apparently have enough lemonade stand inspectors that they've been able to police all the little girls who are selling lemonade in their front yards. In Midway, Georgia, three little girls were told they needed a business license, a peddler's permit, and a food permit to set up a lemonade stand on their front lawn. During the U.S. Open in June, officials in Montgomery County, Maryland, right outside Washington, fined kids $500 for running a lemonade stand that was selling bottled lemonade. It wasn't even homemade lemonade so that you might wonder who made it. They were selling bottled lemonade. This was Montgomery County. Um, they were fined $500 for running this lemonade stand. In Coralville, Iowa, in the heartland of America, one mother said the police told her the cost of a permit there would be $400. All of this so kids can sell lemonade in their front yards. And there are more recent cases, and again, uh, Reason's website is excellent for keeping up with these things. There's a woman in Detroit who could get 90 days in jail for planting vegetables in her front yard. Now, I don't know how that goes with Michelle Obama's campaign that we should all eat more vegetables. Apparently, we should eat them, and we should buy them locally, but not too locally. Not in your own front yard, but just buy them from somebody down the street. Um, Alexandria, Virginia is telling people they can't tear down their ugly chain link, chain link fences. Food trucks are being harassed and banned from New York City to Los Angeles. Legislators are trying to ban wearing your pants too low. New York City wants to ban farmers markets from slicing cheese. Kings County, Washington, that's Seattle, is mandating life vests while swimming and boating. Probably a good idea to wear a life vest, but why it should be mandated even for expert swimmers, even in shallow water, not clear. And over the past few years, there's just so much more of this going on. People talk about a growing nanny state. They're banning light bulbs, they're banning trans fats, they're taxing snack foods, banning steroids, banning things that aren't drugs but kind of seem like drugs. Students have been arrested for bringing stuff to school that looks like marijuana but isn't. There was a year-long investigation recently leading up to an armed raid on a food co-op selling raw milk. Governments are passing policies designed to make us exercise more, save more, eat more vegetables, just don't grow them. And you get this kind of paternalism on both left and right. And I think if you talk to people, they probably think it's the other side that does it. You know, liberals think conservatives want to interfere in people's personal lives. Conservatives think liberals want to set up a nanny state, and they're both right. So we get sexual harassment laws from the Democrats, including the very one that tripped up Bill Clinton in the Paula Jones case. I would have felt a lot more sorry for him in the way he got roped in by this law, except that he signed it. So anybody should be punished by it. Niggling regulations on workplaces and smoking bans and fat taxes and gun bans and programs to tuck us in at night. And then from the Republicans, we get federal money for churches and congressional investigations. Last time the Republicans were in charge of Congress, they held congressional investigations into textbook pricing, the college football bowl system, the firing of Terrell Owens from the Philadelphia Eagles, video games, the television rating system. It just went on and on. All of these things they thought needed federal intervention, federal investigation. 
They gave us huge new fines for indecency on television, crackdowns on medical marijuana and steroids and ephedra, federal money to subsidize marriage for some people and federal laws to prevent marriage by some other people. And the message on both sides is clear that these politicians and bureaucrats know more about how to live your life and manage your health and raise your kids and manage your money than you do. But I think there is something deeper there. This, we, we put this in the announcement. H.L. Mencken said, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. And you just get the sense that a lot of these people are worried that somebody is enjoying himself. And there are lots of different ways to enjoy yourself. It could be by eating, it could be by smoking, it could be by using drugs, it could be by um, shooting things, hunting. Um, all kinds of things that make somebody mad, that somebody else thinks that's not a good way to enjoy yourself and so they want to ban these things or they want to tax them or they want to use government policies to nudge you against doing these things. Maybe because they don't have enough going on in their own lives. If, if they were happy, if they had fulfilling lives, might they leave the rest of us alone? Well, I don't want to get into that much psychology. I want to talk a little bit about some definitional issues. One of the couple of the terms that come up when we talk about these things Victimless crimes and the nanny state. What's a victimless crime? Well, these days, whenever I want to know what anything is, I just go to Wikipedia. So I went to Wikipedia and looked up what is a victimless crime. It seemed pretty accurate. Behavior that is illegal but does not violate or threaten the rights of anyone. Well, that's exactly right. Behavior that is illegal but not because it violates or threatens anyone else's rights. So I would say that smoking cigarettes is a victimless crime. It is, well, it's not yet illegal, but it's getting there. Um, but it certainly doesn't violate anybody else's rights. Smoking pot is illegal, but not because it's a behavior that violates anybody else's rights. For hundreds of years, we had sodomy laws in this country specifying particular kinds of sexual acts that couldn't be engaged in by consenting adults. Behavior that was illegal, but didn't violate anybody else's rights. And then I looked up on Wikipedia nanny state and it said in general it is used in reference to policies where the state is characterized as being excessive in its desire to protect govern or control particular aspects of society yeah I think that's right government wanting to protect govern or control particular aspects of society and in particular the point of nanny state is to say that government wants to treat people as children and in that sense, it's a little bit unfair to nannies because nannies are hired for the purpose of taking care of actual children and guiding them according to their parents' wishes. But I haven't hired the government to tell me how to have sex or what to eat or what kind of light bulbs to use. And I'm not a child. I had parents. Hopefully, they gave me some good ideas about how to live my life, but I'm an adult now and my parents no longer tell me what to do, I don't see why the government should be in loco parentis or in the guise of a nanny. In his classic book on liberty, John Stuart Mill makes the case against laws 
restricting purely private behavior. In fact, you can go to John Stuart Mill's Facebook page and you can find perhaps his most famous quote. The only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. His own good, either physical or moral, is not a sufficient warrant. That, I think, is the fundamental principle of liberty in Western civilization. The only purpose for which you should use force against adult individuals is to prevent them from harming others and specifically from violating the rights of others. Their own good is not sufficient reason. You want to tell people they should stop smoking? There are people at the Cato Institute, I tell them a couple of times a week they should stop smoking because it's really stupid. But don't force people to stop smoking. Don't force people. Don't use force against people's individual choices, even if you think it would be good for them. No doubt we could all improve our lives, and if we had somebody who was all-wise, all-loving, all-knowing to tell us how we should actually live our lives, perhaps they'd come up with better plans than we would ourselves. But when we think about it that way, we realize there are sort of three fundamental problems with socialism, with government planning that approximates, moves in the direction of socialism, and I think also with paternalism, with attempts to help other people run their lives better. The incentive problem, the knowledge problem, and the totalitarian problem. So let me run through those. The incentive problem. When you make your own decisions, you reap the benefits, you bear the costs. Freedom means responsibility. If you make bad decisions, if smoking is a bad decision, you may pay the cost for that. If not saving enough money is a bad decision, you may pay the cost of that. When you make your own decisions, you reap the benefits and you bear the cost. But when you make decisions for other people, you don't have nearly the same incentive. If I tell you to save more and you end up not being able to, let's say, afford college because you're putting all your money that you're earning into a retirement savings account, it's really no skin off my nose. I'm not going to bear the consequences of the fact that you weren't able to spend your money in the way that you thought was best. And a lot of the argument for paternalism is the idea that each of us is fallible, that each of us is weak, that we don't appreciate our long-term interests, and that the government will appreciate our long-term interests. Well, think again about your parents. Your parents love you. Your parents, hopefully, having lived longer, have acquired more wisdom than you do. Do you do everything they tell you? And would you want them to tell you even more than they do? Probably not. So now you have to think, the people who work in this building, do they love you as much as your parents? Do they know you as much as your parents? Do you think Congressman Weiner is even as wise as your parents? Um, 
you have to believe that politicians and bureaucrats, and I say the people who work in this building, specifically thinking of members of Congress, at least you know who they are. They run for office. You elect them. But most of these laws are implemented and operated by people whose names and faces you will never know. That's why they're called faceless bureaucrats. So you can't even vote them out if you don't like their policies. That's one of the problems with giving that kind of power to government. So, so the argument for paternalism has to be that these people will do a better job of running your life than you will. But they don't have much of an incentive to make the right decisions. They won't bear the cost. Private decision makers do make bad decisions all the time. You make bad decisions, I make bad decisions, businesses make bad decisions. There are feedback loops, there are feedback mechanisms. If you make bad decisions in your personal life or in your business life, there are consequences to that. But errors are more likely in political markets where the incentives to correct things are weak. One of the examples I always talk about is 20 or so years ago, Coca-Cola made the decision to replace the most successful consumer product of modern times, Coca-Cola, with a new taste called New Coke. And it turned out people hated it. People liked the Coca-Cola they'd been spending billions of dollars a year on for almost 100 years. And so this is a big American company with all the best consultants, and it made a really stupid mistake. And it seemed like it took them forever. I personally bought three cases of Coke to try to tide myself over, but I understood how long, you know, you can't buy a lifetime supply. It seemed like it took forever for the Coca-Cola company to recognize its mistake and back out of it. In fact, it took 17 weeks. That's how long it took the Coca-Cola company to recognize its mistake. Now, how long did it take the U.S. government to recognize that the Vietnam War was a mistake? Well, about 17 years, as it turns out. And who knows, that may turn out not to be the bad example in a few more years. We'll be talking about the Iraq War. But the, the incentives for correction are much weaker. That's why there's an incentive problem in making decisions for other people's lives. New York City prepared some health ads last year. They just, these were just to nag you and to uh, give you information and to tell you to eat better. And it turned out that their own scientists in the health department said, you know, what's in these ads is not true. And the head of the New York City Health Department said in a memo, well, I think if the claims are broad enough, we can get away with them. Not I think they're true. He said, well, I think it's broad enough, we can get away with it. That's the incentive system in government. Hey, we got these cool ads telling people how to run their lives. So what if they're not real? I'm not going to get fired. And guess what? He hasn't been fired. This, this came out in public. Nobody got fired. Nobody gets fired when government screws up like this. Sometimes the government's health advice has just been wrong. They tell us for years to eat the wrong stuff. Then they have to change the, say, no, eat this stuff instead. Now I understand. Science marches on. We learn new things. We get better understanding. But one of the values of the systems of capitalism and science is that they are competitive and there are critics constantly trying to knock off 
the big company, the established company, the established scientific wisdom. But when you lock it in in government, it becomes much harder to knock out. And there's no competition. There's this one government telling you how to do things. So that's sort of an incentive problem. And then, obviously connected to what I've been talking about, there's the knowledge problem. How does a planner, a socialist organizer, an economic interventionist, or a paternalist know enough information to make the decisions that would be required to do his job right. I may tell you that I want to exercise more and eat less, but if I don't exercise more and eat less, that's kind of an indication that I don't really want that given all the choices available to me. Those are not the choices I'm making. So actual choices tell you what people want. Now we expect bureaucrats in far off Washington or far off Sacramento to know what I really want and what really would be good for me, maybe what I want isn't actually good for me, they kind of need to know both of these things. Good paternalist policies require not only accurate scientific knowledge, and I just raised some questions about how accurate our knowledge is at any time, but also accurate knowledge of the particular circumstances of time and place that constitute the local and personal knowledge of each individual. And that kind of knowledge is very difficult for paternalists to have. They may have aggregate data saying that Americans are overweight, but they don't know about any specific American. And all of our bodies are different, so they don't necessarily know what's right for each and every one of us. For some people, alcohol is a fun addition to a social life. For other people, alcohol is a really dangerous thing they should probably avoid. But when you try to create government policies, paternalist policies, you can't make those kinds of distinctions. You try to make policies that are supposed to apply to everybody. If you take, and, and, and people often say they are looking at the new behavioral economics literature. If you take the behavioral economics and psychology literature seriously, it shows that new paternalist policies can only increase social welfare, individual welfare, if they take account of individual circumstances. And it becomes pretty impossible for a government of 300 million people or even a government of, say, 5 million Virginians to take account of individuals better than each individual can take account. Trying to determine what people's real preferences are, and this is one of the arguments in the behavioral economics literature, your real preferences are to exercise more and eat less. That may not be the way you act, but that's your real preference, the, the platonic ideal of your preference. Determining what my real preferences are is hard, harder than it seems. Have you ever tried to buy a really good birthday present for your mother or your girlfriend? You find it's difficult to know exactly what they would really like? Now imagine that you are Nancy Pelosi and John Boehner trying to get together and buy you a really good birthday present. They don't know anything about you. You find it difficult when you actually know this person intimately, and now we're going to have people making decisions about your life who have never met you, who really don't care very much about you except in some broad abstract sense. And so you get the incentive problem, you get the knowledge problem, and then you get the totalitarian problem. When you give people power over others, you create a temptation to use that power. 
those with the power get to make the decisions, and often they make it on the basis of political clout because it is, in fact, impossible to make right decisions for everybody in society. One of the problems with all this paternalist stuff, I mean, there's a totalitarian problem that Hayek wrote about in The Road to Serfdom about giving government power over the economy, because power over the economy is power to tell people where to work, how to work, how to spend their money, really the stuff of life. Paternalism is often about changing people's minds. They want you to change your attitude toward drugs or tobacco or food or motorcycle riding, all kinds of things. But I don't think government should be in the business of changing minds. And I think this goes back to the wars of religion. We used to have established religions in the world. And one of the things we found was that it led to war. People care a lot about the content of their minds, including how and whether they worship, but also lots of other things that are in their minds. And the idea that the government is going to try to push you to think a certain way, very dangerous. The Harvard economist Ed Glazer writes about this, and he says, people make lots of decisions that are bad, but the great errors have not been private, they've been public. One of the things he wrote, and I think this was in Regulation Magazine, which is published by Cato, was, over the centuries, over the years, paternalism has been used to justify government actions and rhetoric toward alcohol, drugs, homosexuality, religion-related activity, slavery, and even loyalty to the government itself. And if we looked back over a lot of those paternalist policies, we would be appalled the government tried to support slavery, it tried to keep homosexuals in the closet, um, it tried to enforce one religion in this state and another religion in another state. We think all of that is terrible now. What will we think 50 or 100 years from now of the things government is pushing on us now? Glazer went on to say, much of the most effective soft paternalism involves broadcasting the message that a given behavior is bad or reflects self-destructive weakness. Individuals who do not engage in the behavior and who are exposed to such messages will come to think that people who do engage in the behavior are unattractive human beings. So the government's pressure programs may make people dislike smokers, fat people, non-recyclers, and in the past, gay people, welfare cheats, other kinds of people. Now, it can also backfire by overemphasizing the message of obesity. It can cause particularly young women to engage in destructive activities like bulimia and anorexia. So first, it makes fat people feel bad about themselves, and second, it makes even normally sized people feel that they're maybe too fat and they should engage in behavior that's actually dangerous. One of the problems with the totalitarian pro problem is that once you've got the power, you tend to overreach. Once you have the idea and the authority to impose your will on other people, you start passing sweeping laws that may have a genuine purpose, a legitimate purpose, but that go way too far. And there's one example right now. There's a law before Congress called the Protecting Children from Internet Pornographers Act of 2011. This law has been passed by a House committee, and under this law, under the language that's been approved so far, 
The firm that sells you internet access would be required to track all of your internet activity and save it for 18 months connected to your name, the address where you live, your bank account numbers, your credit card numbers, and IP addresses you've been assigned. So the idea is they're going to track all the daily online activity and the personal coordinates of every person in the United States in order to help catch a very small number of child criminals. That is the sort of thing police states do. And it's why we've generally said in the United States Better for a hundred guilty men to go free than for one innocent man to be locked up. We have believed in protecting the liberty of the individual, even knowing that if we put a camera in every living room and every kitchen, we would catch some illegal activity that we currently don't. We'd be treating every internet user like a criminal. And that's the, that's the sort of thing people are tempted to do once they have the power to do it and once they get it in their head that it's their job to police all of society from lemonade stands to child pornography. One of the ways to look at what's been going on, I hear this a lot about the nanny state, and libertarians tend to say it's getting worse and worse. Maybe it is. I'm going to raise some questions about that. One of the things that I think has changed over the past 50 or 100 years is that a lot of the nanny state used to be about eradicating sin or maybe protecting morality and social order, and it's moved toward protecting health and safety. So instead of banning homosexuality, prostitution, various other kinds of sexual behavior, uh, banning dissident religions and so on, we've moved to taxing salt and trying to ban potato chips and banning steroids and all these things because they're about health. That's the new thing. Nobody in America these days wants to say that's sinful. But if you say that's unhealthy or that's bad for the environment, it works just as well. It's partly a different motivation, but I'll tell you what, try telling an environmentalist that you ought to be able to uh, decide for yourself what kind of light bulb to buy, and you will hear fire and brimstone as much as any Jonathan Edwards uh, sermon. So it's not clear that we've moved away from the concept of sin, but at least it's couched these days in the language of health. Now, I'm talking about the dangers of the nanny state and, and possibly the argument that it's getting worse, that every day there's another niggling regulation. And it's certainly true. If you look, if you look for websites that cover the nanny state, um, you can find something every day, the lemonade stands, the uh, woman growing vegetables in her front yard, and so on. But I want to raise two cautions about being too quick to assume we're moving headlong toward a nanny state. Number one, not everything that people call the nanny state is, in my view. A few years ago, people started talking about uh, laws to ban texting while driving. This was a couple of years after they wanted to ban using cell phones while driving. Texting seemed like another step. And one of the things TV producers started doing was calling the Cato Institute and saying, you guys are libertarians, you must oppose these laws about texting, you have somebody who can come on, and, and we did, and then they went on and they argued against these laws. And, and then I started thinking about these laws a little more. And I thought, I don't think this is quite a nanny state law. Think about a texting law and a seatbelt law. 
The point of the law against texting, and it, it may not be effectively designed, it may not actually be a sensible law, but the point of it at least is to say that the highway I drive on should be safe from your dangerous behavior. It should prohibit you from imposing risks on me. So if you're texting, you are putting your own life at risk, but you're also putting my life at risk because your car might veer across the line and hit me. Now think about the seatbelt law. And I've thought about it because I got a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt. Not anything else, just not wearing a seatbelt. The point of a seatbelt law is just to protect me. It's not to protect you from me. My decision not to wear a seatbelt gets back to what I said in the beginning. I will bear the costs of that decision. If I have an accident and it turns out I would have come out better from that accident by not wearing a seatbelt, then I'm going to bear that. It's not going to be on any of you. None of you are going to be made less safe by my not wearing a seatbelt. In fact, there's an interesting little secret here. There is some statistical evidence that shows that people who wear seatbelts are worse drivers. It's like people have some level in their head of how much risk I'm willing to assume. The seatbelt reduces the risk of what might happen to me in an accident, and there seems to be some evidence that drivers therefore increase the amount of risk of having an accident that they're allowed to run. One economist once said, you want to reduce traffic accidents? I can tell you how to do it put a six-inch metal spike on the dashboard. People will drive safely if you do that. Now, one of the reasons we don't do that is because it seems so simple and obvious and you wouldn't need a massive government bureaucracy. The other reason is we, at that point we do kind of understand, wait a minute, that's, that's like protecting me. But in fact, the texting law is different from the seatbelt law because it's designed to protect other people from my risky decisions. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good law. There are still other questions to ask. Does it make sense? How dangerous is texting actually? And when you dig down into the statistics of the studies that are headlined, texting increases by 10 times the risk of an accident, the studies aren't very good. But it kind of seems like it would be dangerous. Then there's the question of how do you know somebody's texting? I mean, he's looking down. He might be looking at a map. Should that be illegal, looking at a map? How about looking in the back seat at the kids? How about reaching over to uh, get a drink that you've got in your cup holder? All of those things are some level, boy, my complicated new car and the audio options that I have on it. I could spend two minutes each time I'm looking for a new audio option there. So maybe we just need laws against distracted driving. Now, one of the arguments against that is that puts a lot of arbitrary power in the hands of the police. They get to decide who's distracted and who's not. So there are prudential arguments on both sides of the texting law. I'm just going to say it's not a clear nanny state law, whereas I think the seatbelt law is a clear nanny state law. It is designed to protect you from the consequences of your own decisions. So that's one caution about thinking we're on a road to serfdom. Number two, a second caution is we have lots of these niggling little regulations and they are annoying, but we used to have some gross violations of individual freedom. We had established churches, we had slavery, we had prohibition, we had bans on homosexual activity uh, and other kinds of sexual uh, activity. We had restrictions on free speech that we don't have anymore. Lots of uh, restrictions on pornography, obscenity, blasphemy that have uh, disappeared. We used to have blue laws that restricted games and shopping on Sunday. We still have those in a few places. 
And I think if you look at those and you compare them to even the reign of terror against lemonade stands or the taxes on snack foods and so on, these are less gross violations of individual freedom and therefore it's not clear that we're rushing headlong toward the government running people's lives. <clears throat> Sometimes people say it seems like everything not forbidden is compulsory. And I've heard conservatives say, let's not legalize this because then they'll make it compulsory. Well, that's an exaggeration. It's a little unfair. But I understand where they're coming from. There is this perception that first things are outlawed and then you decide to, uh, uh, to mandate them or to mandate uh, protection of them or so on. Now I want to make a point about the light bulb ban. You're all aware that there is a law now that effectively bans the use of incandescent light bulbs after a, uh, another year or so. It's not technically a ban, but it effectively is going to ban incandescent light bulbs. And there's a lot of uh, resistance to it, and so the Secretary of Energy, Stephen Chu, did a press conference recently, and one of the things he said in his press conference was, we are taking away a choice that continues to let people waste their own money. So here you have this government trying to impose a new kind of light bulb. And some people just don't like fluorescent light. They don't, look, they don't like living under a creepy blue light. Some people don't like the way the new bulbs come on slowly. Some people have noticed they don't work very well with dimmers and motion sensors. Some people don't like the curly Q look. Some people have discovered that it's like a toxic waste site if you break one of these. You read the description of what to do if you break one of these in your house. It's pretty scary. Some people are skeptical about the promises of long-term savings. It turns out unless you use these bulbs in exactly precise ways, there may not be the long-term saving they've promised. But given all of these arguments, the response of Secretary Chu is yes. We are taking away a choice that continues to allow people to waste their own money. And I think that's sort of the conflict between the libertarian and paternalist views in a nutshell. The libertarian says, fine, give people the information, then let them make their own choices. The paternalist says, it's a choice that allows people to waste their own money and I won't tolerate that. I'm going to take away that choice, even though, as it turns out, my evidence isn't all that good. That's the difference between treating people as adults and treating them as children. Many conservatives want to be your daddy telling you what to do and what not to do, and many liberals want to be your mommy feeding you, tucking you in, setting your curfew. But the proper role for the government of a free society, the role that libertarians advocate, is to treat children as children and to treat adults as adults, responsible for making their own decisions and responsible for bearing the consequences. And so, let me point out to you that 10 days from today, August 20th, is Lemonade Freedom Day. Please go out and buy a glass of lemonade from a little girl, even if there are government inspectors hovering around. And then December 5th has been designated Repeal Day, celebrating the repeal of prohibition. The advocates of it say, how many days do we have to celebrate the lifting of a government oppression? So let's celebrate Repeal Day on December 5th. Uh, it'll be the, what, 78th anniversary of the repeal of prohibition. I'd like to broaden it. Let's make it Repeal Day that celebrates the repeal of all sorts of restrictions on government freedom. So mark your calendar for December 5th and then go home tonight and tear the little tag off your mattress 
the government can't force you to keep that tag on your mattress. Thank you very much.